Good morning. In today's headlines, with Independence Day upon us, many will be heading outdoors for family get-togethers, barbecues and fireworks. We take a look at whether the forecast calls for sunscreen or rain boots. The search for suspects in the Sunday shooting in Baltimore continues. It left two people dead and 28 injured. And four people were shot and killed in Philadelphia last night by a man in a bulletproof vest. We have the details. Tensions run high in the West Bank as Israel cracks down on a refugee camp in Jenin that Israel Defense Forces call the Hornet's Nest. Meta Platforms is unleashing its new app to rival Twitter this week. The app called Threads looks almost identical to Twitter. Find out when you can download it. Today, Americans across the country are celebrating Independence Day. I spoke to a presidential historian about its history. And thousands of spectators are expected to watch Nathan's famous international hot dog eating contest in New York. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. Happy July 4th. I'm Evelyn Lee. It's Tuesday today. Fireworks, parades, concerts, Independence Day is upon us. A time to celebrate the birth of a great nation. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on what kind of weather you can expect during the festivities. In the Northeast, scattered showers could throw a wrench in holiday plans from parts of upstate New York to New England. But forecasters say most of the stormy weather could steer clear from the I-95 corridor. Virginia and the Carolinas could see stormier conditions near the coast, but areas to the north may see calmer conditions. You'll be keeping that AC on out west. Forecasters say record-breaking heat will broil northern California and western Oregon. Highs there should reach into the 90s and low 100s. People in Arizona should stay near a swimming pool as Phoenix and Tucson are forecast to meet with triple-digit temperatures. As for the central Great Plains, scattered but severe thunderstorms are forecast beginning late afternoon Tuesday into Tuesday night. Forecasters warn people there to be aware of possible severe thunderstorm gusts. Plenty of good times and catching up with family and friends is forecast across the nation. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And we'll have more details and stories on how to stay safe tonight in the second half of the show. And stay tuned for our weather. Yes, but first, some updates on the tragic Baltimore shooting. Suspects in the Baltimore block party shooting are still at large. Police are searching for multiple suspects. Two people were killed and 28 injured in the shooting on Sunday. Here's what Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott had to say about finding the suspects. They were grown adults filming young people with guns who said nothing, who did nothing, who didn't say to the police, hey, I know this teenager's out here at this event with a gun, and we have to have a sense of responsibility to our own community as well. Police Commissioner Richard Worley says all surviving victims sustained gunshot wounds. The reward for information leading to an arrest is $28,000. 23 of the 28 wounded were teenagers. The youngest was 13 years old. Mayor Scott said yesterday seven were still in hospitals, four in critical condition. The motive is still unknown. 
And another shooting in Philadelphia last night. Police say four people were killed and two children injured. Authorities took in a suspected shooter. Police say he's in his 40s and wore a bulletproof vest. They also said he had a police scanner and didn't appear to have any connection to the victims. A second person was also taken into custody in connection with the shootings. Police say they believe he returned fire at the shooter, but weren't sure if they knew each other. Three guns were recovered from the scene. That included a rifle and a handgun that belonged to the suspect. And over to Israel, the country launched its most intense raid in the West Bank in nearly two decades yesterday. Entity's Daniel Monaghan has more on the attack involving drone strikes and hundreds of troops. A column of Israeli military vehicles advances towards the city of Jenin. Troops hurriedly exit a transport truck and immediately engage enemies. Bursts of machine gun fire fly at unseen combatants. At least 10 Palestinians have been killed and dozens wounded in the raid so far. The crackdown comes amid growing pressure within Israel for a tough response to recent attacks on Israeli settlers. One shooting last month killed four Israelis. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Jenin has become a safe haven for attacks. Terrorists perpetrated savage attacks murdering Israeli civilians, men, women, and children. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad terrorist group has vowed retaliation after a recent strike killed one and wounded several, while hundreds of Hamas terror group supporters gathered in the Gaza Strip to show solidarity with Palestinians in Jenin. Israel says the operation in Jenin's refugee camp aims to uproot Iranian-backed Palestinian armed factions. The Jenin refugee camp was established in 1953 to house Palestinians who fled or were forced out of their homes in the 1948 Palestine War. The camp has since become a Palestinian terrorist stronghold called the Hornet's Nest by the Israeli Defense Forces. An Israeli official says the operation is close to achieving its goals. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. To understand what's going on, NTD's Tiffany Myers spoke with Arie Lightstone, a former special envoy for the Abraham Accords and author of Let My People Know. Here's that interview. So Israeli forces just launched the biggest military offensive since 2002 in the city of Jenin in the West Bank. They're saying this isn't going after Palestinians. This is a counterterrorism effort. Give us a sense of what is actually unfolding there. So it, it's very clear this is not going after Palestinians. It is trying to uh, unroot uh, a terror haven that's been there now for not months or years, but almost a decade of rapidly producing active actions of terror coming from Janine. And if you've seen the news, as you report the news, uh, coming out of the West Bank, Samaria area in the last 18 months, uh, there have been tens of terror attacks perpetrated from that area. And since the Palestinian Authority is supposed to be exerting security control there, and they've chosen not to or are unable to, Israel is unfortunately forced to go into Janine with great risk to the young men and women who are going in there in order to unroot this terror that has taken place there. And expanding on that, what is the significance of Janine? Why target this area? But Janine is a very uh, important city in the West Bank, in the Samaria area, heavily populated, 
has the opportunity to sort of be a Manhattan of the West Bank in terms of commerce, in terms of the age demographics, in terms of sort of the excitement of the area. It is a place that could and really should be flourishing economically and via other opportunities. Instead, it's turned to a place of mass unemployment, mass discontent. And when there's mass unemployment, mass discontent, uh, then they have turned, unfortunately, in a great way to uh, fear and terror. And uh, I hate to bring this part up, but if your viewers have watched the Netflix Sauda uh, and have seen sort of the street-to-street fighting that is taking place or is portrayed in that film, that's pretty accurate. And this is hand-to-hand, street-to-street, house-to-house, and alley-to-alley combat by the IDF soldiers where they're taking great risk to avoid damaging civilians, trying to root out the very uh, source of the terror. And on that note, is there any ideas of where the sources of terror are coming from? Is it Iran? What are the forces here? So thank you for asking that, because that's what makes this different and slightly unique. In the past, the players were really extreme Islamic Jihad, which took a form of Hamas. And normally the Palestinian Authority, which is supposed to be the moderate factor in the West Bank, was able, together with Israel, to keep Hamas down to a limit. This is not Hamas. This is Iranian terror cells that have grown up in Janin are acting with impunity to the degree that they even have shoulder-fired missiles that could be launched from Janin. This is completely and totally untenable for the state of Israel to be able to have, because this puts every civilian uh, in all of Israel within reach of these terror activities. And this is classic Iran expanding their circle uh, of malfeasance around the region. And Arya, do you expect the violence to escalate? Where do you see this going from here? Well, here's the big challenge. You have Mahmoud Abbas, who's the president, I think, in his 18th year of a four-year term uh, of the Palestinian Authority, who people are counting down the days until he disappears. Uh, There is no real authority there. And when you've got a vacuum, like we've discussed so many times beforehand, it's not like the best people rise up to fill that vacuum. Right now, you're seeing the very worst, and the Iranians are taking advantage of this. Israel does not want to be in Janine. Israel does not want to be taking this action. They would love that the Palestinian Authority would go ahead and educate the the young men and women there to be able to have a lifestyle of success and prosperity. But unfortunately, it's gone exactly the opposite way. It is an area devoid of leadership, and Israel will be there, I think, to make sure that their citizens remain safe for the long run. Coming up, multiple groups have filed a civil rights lawsuit against Harvard over legacy preference in admissions. And Meta Platforms is releasing a new app this week called Threads. Screenshots of the app show a dashboard that appears to mimic Twitter. We have the details. Welcome back. In a surprising turn of events, the Department of Homeland Security has announced plans to build 20 more miles of the U.S.-Mexico border wall. And this goes directly against President Biden's promise not to build another foot of the wall. And today's Jason Perry brings us the details. The Department of Homeland Security has given the green light for U.S. Customs and Border Protection to build 20 miles of border wall. DHS says it's obligated by law to do so unless Congress takes action to cancel it. But with Republicans holding a majority in the House, the odds for new border wall construction getting canceled is quite low. So how did this come about? 
In 2019, when former President Trump was in office, over $1.3 billion were appropriated by Congress to build the border wall. And since President Biden took office, a large portion of those border wall funds that were allocated by the Department of Defense were returned to the Pentagon. Now, Customs and Border Protection still has an estimated $190 million remaining in fiscal year 2019 funding. And DHS is legally mandated to use the remaining fiscal year 2019 funds for their appropriated purpose, which is building the U.S.-Mexico border wall, specifically in the Rio Grande Valley. CBP will also replace deteriorated borders in parts of Arizona and California. Joe Biden was candidate. He said not one inch of more, you know, of extra fence would be built once he took over. I spoke with Mark Krikorian, executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies, to get his take on it. It's two and a half years after they took over, so it seems like they should have, uh, you know, come to this conclusion a while ago. Nonetheless, that's why they're doing this, not because they have some newfound commitment to Donald Trump's conception of what the border should be like. And he added this. What I think most people already understand is that a border wall alone isn't going to work if the people who get past it are rewarded with being able to stay. You have to change the incentives. And this administration has not meaningfully changed the incentives. So an extra 20 miles or so of wall might help a little bit in a particular area that they're put up. It's not going to fundamentally change anything. And as Texas border communities are overwhelmed by the constant flow of illegal immigration, Texas has now dropped off its second busload of immigrants in Los Angeles. Mayor Karen Bass's spokesperson said that the city believes in treating everyone with respect and dignity. Not all of the illegal immigrants are planning to stay in Los Angeles. Some continued on to places like Las Vegas, Oakland, San Francisco, and Seattle. Jason Perry, NTD News. Does planet Earth need some sunscreen? A report from the White House says blocking sunlight can prevent global warming. It focuses on research surrounding putting aerosols in the atmosphere and brightening clouds. These are part of what's called solar radiation modification, or SRM. Some say this can offset some of the purported human-induced warming by bouncing sun rays back into space. To get some insight on this, we're joined live by Gregory Wrightstone. He's a geologist and the executive director of the CO2 Coalition in Arlington, Virginia. It's great to have you with us, Gregory. Oh, it's good to be back on. It's just another one of these crazy ideas launched by the, the net zero crowd in the Joe Biden administration. Uh, they seem bound and determined to destroy agriculture which is partially what this would do if they do it. Uh, blocking sunlight, I mean, the main thing I've always, when I hear that, I say, what could go wrong? Uh, we can look back through history and see there were other periods of natural uh, geoengineering, blocking of sunlight, and it's always led to horrific consequences. So if you think back to middle school, what, what do we need to grow crops? Photosynthesis, what do, what do they need? Water, sunlight, food, and CO2. Carbon. Right. The more CO2, the better. What's their solution? We need to decrease CO2, which will inhibit crop growth. Now what they want to do is let's block the sunlight, which will also inhibit crop growth. And then on the third hand, they want to get rid of nitrogen-based fertilizers, thought to make up perhaps 30 to 40% of the increase in crop growth in the 20th century. 
all those three things, it's it's almost an anti-human agenda. Uh, we need to feed a growing population. We don't need to restrict agriculture, which all of these policies will do. Gregory, you wanted to touch about Swiss Re Foundation. They, they said that manipulating this climate via these methods can actually do extreme weather events like flooding, drought, and windstorms. Are we sure that we want to go this route? Yeah, if we look back, uh, the last great cold period was called the Little Ice Age. And it was it was initiated in Europe. They went they went several five years in fact where it just wouldn't stop raining. They couldn't get the crops in the ground. They couldn't harvest them. They rotted in the fields. Again, you heard me say it before: crop failure, famine, pestilence, and mass depopulation were, were what occurred during the cold periods. Uh, we don't want that. With people like Dr. Michael Mann, who says the perfect temperature would be for uh, we started adding CO2 to the atmosphere. No, no. Put us directly in the temperatures of the Little Ice Age. Uh, we know that half the population of Iceland perished at that time. A third of the population of the world perished during that cold period. No, no, thank you. I don't want that. Uh, I like the warmth. Uh, I moved to Florida from Pittsburgh, so I, I cured part of that problem. Uh, they're warning us of a, of a 1.5 degree. We can't let it get above 1.5 degrees. It's already warmed 1.2 degrees. So really what they're warning us about is a three-tenths of a degree Celsius rise. And that's half a degree Fahrenheit. If, it, if, if your room that your studio you're in increased or decreased by half a degree, you'd never know it. It wouldn't trip on your thermostat. Uh, and if you're that worried about it, move 18 miles farther north and you'll be half a degree cooler. All right? So Problem Gregory, this is... This was a really insightful discussion on this novel and controversial method here. Gregory Wrightstone, geologist and executive director of the CO2 Coalition. It was great hearing from you today. Thank you. President Biden announced Monday his intention to nominate Elliot Abrams to the U.S. Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. Abrams is a former appointee under former President Trump. He has served in three Republican administrations and most recently acted as the Trump administration's special envoy to Iran and Venezuela. There, he was tasked with directing the campaign to replace Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro. Abrams has a long history in foreign policy, which is marked by a 1991 guilty plea for withholding information about the Iran-Contra affair. That charge earned him two misdemeanor counts, two years probation, and 100 hours of community service. His crimes were later pardoned by President George H.W. Bush. The United States Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy is a bipartisan body. It does not allow for more than four of its seven members to be from any political party. Three groups have filed a federal civil loss, rights lawsuit against Harvard. It comes just days after the Supreme Court restricted the use of race as a factor in college admissions. The groups say Harvard's practice of giving preferential treatments to applicants with family ties or wealthy donors is discriminatory. The complaint alleges numerous colleges and universities have recognized the unfairness of such preferences and have eliminated them in recent years. A spokesperson for Harvard says the university will not comment on the new lawsuit. Facebook owner Meta is releasing its new app called Threads this week. The app is built to work with Instagram. It's expected to use the platform's user data. That could give it a boost at launch since it would be connected to millions of accounts. 
Users will be able to keep the same username, but screenshots of the app look strikingly similar to Twitter. Some are even calling it a Twitter clone. Meta has been known to mimic its competitors and create similar products. Yeah, Facebook's Reels feature is pretty close to TikTok, and its stories could be compared to Snapchat. Well, maybe that's why Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg have been talking about having a fight. Well, although the two billionaire CEOs agreed to a cage match, it's not clear how serious they are. That's right. <laughs> and coming up, a trade war between the U.S. and China ramps up. The Chinese regime announced yesterday it's restricting exports of two metals used in semiconductors and solar panels. Find out more about what many call retaliation. Welcome back. The trade war between the U.S. and China is ramping up. The Chinese regime said yesterday it's restricting exports of two metals used in semiconductors. The move is widely seen as retaliation for U.S. restrictions on sales of microchips and chip-making equipment to China. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the tit-for-tat move. China's Commerce Ministry said Monday it would control exports of gallium and germanium products to protect its national security and interests. It says exporters need to apply for licenses and report details of the overseas buyers to continue doing business. The metals are used in semiconductors, solar panels, electric vehicles and 5G base stations. The move has the potential to cause more disruption to global supply chains. The rule is set to take effect August 1st. Companies are rushing to react. U.S. semiconductor wafer maker AXT said Monday it would immediately apply for export permits through its Chinese subsidiary. Other companies are looking to stockpile products before the export controls take effect. Many buyers anticipate it could take up to two months to get a license permit for exports. The U.S. is concerned about China's use of artificial intelligence technologies in military applications. It's taking steps to curb the export of AI chips to China. The U.S. is also reportedly looking to restrict Chinese companies' access to U.S. cloud computing services and stop U.S. operations of Chinese cloud service providers like Alibaba and Tencent. Chinese AI companies can use cloud services and third parties to bypass export control rules. The restrictions are meant to close that loophole. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. We're taking you over to Europe now. France saw relative calm overnight following five nights of heavy riots in the capital. It offered some relief to the government of Emmanuel Macron and its fight to regain control of the situation. Here's the story. After five nights of violent riots and thousands of arrests, Sunday night silence on the streets of Paris was deafening. Across the country, the government said some 45,000 police had been deployed again as it tried to grapple with the worst unrest seen in the country in years. Rioters have torched cars, looted stores and targeted town halls and police stations. A grandmother of Nahel, the teenager whose killing at the hands of a police officer sparked the unrest, has now called for all of it to end. Identified as Nadia by French media, the woman said rioters were using the 17-year-old's death last Tuesday as an excuse to cause havoc and that the family wanted calm. Her comments came as eyewitness video showed mothers in a Paris suburb also demanding an end to the violence. 
Joined by young children, they held signs reading justice to victims and stop the violence. Others have said the same. Residents in another Paris suburb told Reuters that rioters wanted to spread, quote, terror and were trying to put the republic in danger. They were speaking a day after the home of a local mayor was rammed with a car and set alight while his wife and children were sleeping inside. President Emmanuel Macron was due to meet with leaders of parliament on Monday and on Tuesday with more than 220 mayors of towns and cities affected by the riots. The government said the number of arrests was down following Saturday's funeral for Nahel, but officials have cautioned it's still too early to say the unrest is over. And now, some short headlines from around the world. Russia's former president, Dmitry Medvedev, is warning Moscow's confrontation with the West will last decades and that its conflict with Ukraine could become permanent. He says tensions between Russia and the West are much worse than during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. He also warns that nuclear war is quite probable but unlikely to have any winners. American ambassador to Russia Lynn Tracy was granted access to jailed Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich yesterday. It's the second such visit since his pre-trial detention in March. He's being held on espionage charges, which he denies. Tracy's, Tracy says the reporter is in good health and remains strong despite his circumstances. Turkey's President Tayyip Erdogan said yesterday he will not lift his opposition to Sweden joining NATO. That's unless it stops harboring groups Turkey considers terrorists. The two groups Erdogan wants Sweden to take action on are the Kurdistan Workers' Party and members of a network it holds responsible for a 2016 coup attempt. And coming up, the 4th of July holiday is also kicking off the season of summer cookouts. We have five tips to help you save money this summer. And we get some tips on how to use fireworks safely over the holiday. So stick around for some best practices on how to enjoy the fun responsibly. Good to have you back with us. A popular roller coaster at North Carolina's Carowinds Amusement Park remained closed yesterday. It was shut down last Friday after a visitor recorded a video showing a cracked support pillar as the ride was underway. The video shows a diagonal crack in the steel pillar which momentarily moves out of place as cars move by at high speed. The person who took the video informed park officials and also called the local fire department. Carowinds released a statement saying the Fury 325 ride was closed after park personnel became aware of the crack. The statement added that all rides at the park undergo daily inspections to ensure proper functioning and structural integrity. Fury 325 is named for its maximum track height of 325 feet. The roller coaster reaches speeds of up to 95 miles per hour, according to the park's website. Carowinds said the ride will remain closed until repairs are completed. That right there is what my nightmares are made of. Oh, yeah. And another report surfaced, and another woman posted the video, posted a photo of the same roller coaster from a week earlier. A small crack appears to be starting to form on the pillar in her picture. And a dramatic video was released showing a Georgia deputy pulling a driver from a burning car. The deputy was responding to reports of a car crash over the weekend. That's when he spotted the burning car in the woods. You can see the deputy working to break the window right here, then pulling the person to safety just as the flames engulfed the car. 
Right now, it's unclear what led to the crash, and we don't yet know of the condition of the driver. Firework sales are expected to reach record levels this 4th of July, according to the American Pyrotechnic Association, and officials are asking the public to stay safe as they celebrate. NTD's Tyler Castillo reports. Tyler Castillo here at Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, where officials are handing out precautions for the upcoming 4th of July holiday. Fireworks signify celebration, and it's no different for America's Independence Day. But officials are saying to avoid handling illegal fireworks and instead go to a professional display. Over in Silicon Valley, Dr. Clifford Schechter, director at the only burn and trauma center in the San Francisco Bay Area, says they typically get one emission per day, but... This season it can be upwards of two to five people a day, so it's a significant influx and uh, it, as, as mentioned it's all types of injuries too it's motor vehicle uh, you know collisions it's it's pedestrian accidents uh, so uh, we, we see a massive influx, influx of all types of trauma and unfortunately drugs and alcohol are usually the common denominator for a lot of it Duncan Reno a patient at the center had part of his body burned while celebrating his daughter's engagement he said an oil-based fire pit exploded in front of him when he went to go put the one in there, this time it just it, it exploded, it flashed, it basically flashed toward me. And because of the pants that I was wearing, my wife was sitting right next to me, and she had nothing but cotton on, and you could see the oil that was on her, but she never caught on fire. Nobody else caught on fire. I caught on fire. Reno said the material of his clothes made him catch on fire. While Rhino's injury wasn't from fireworks, he shares his experience. Well, we get so used to understanding the fires that are around us, either our barbecues or our fire pits or all that stuff. And the thing is, is that everybody should just take a step back, take an inventory of what they have, and really see how if all that's working properly, because it's an instant. That's what Liz and I were saying. It was an instant in our lives changed. He says he was one of the luckier people. Officials say that over 74% of firework-related injuries occur around the July 4th holiday. And while this year's rainstorms helped California's drought, the fire department said the landscape is still recovering from years of drought and are still prone to fires. In San Jose, California, Todd Castillo, NTD News. To stay safe on this 4th of July, here are some tips from a fire chief. Joining me now is Corey Smedley, a fire and emergency medical services chief, to help us stay safe this Independence Day. Thanks for coming on, show, Corey. Absolutely. Welcome so, Corey, of course, we want to have an exciting celebration, and, of course, safety is also a top priority. So what are your most important safety tips when setting off fireworks? Uh, well, there's been extensive uh, research in, in the fire service industry. Um, unfortunately, they come by way of some bad accidents from time to time and we've created laws to uh, learn from those uh, lessons to keep people safe so the best thing i can inform the community to do is to follow the the, the laws of the land uh, and in the city of alexandria um, uh, fireworks are illegal but there are opportunities throughout the city and the region to uh, enjoy our independence day very safely with the different firework activities that are being held by uh, professionals that know how to handle those situations Okay, so Corey, what should people do to set up their firework platform? Should they water the grass first, keep a bucket in hand? You want to keep uh, uh, clearance away from any kind of combustible, so 
Uh, we've had, had some rain lately, but you want to make sure that you're not uh, around anything that could uh, catch fire. You want to make sure that uh, you keep your kids safe from a safe distance. And there are specific examples on the uh, products to inform you the safe distance. Uh, you also want to have a um, some kind of extinguishing agent, whether that's a bucket of water or, or a fire extinguisher. Uh, and you want to make sure that you follow the, the recommendations. And I would state that if uh, please do not mix any kind of adult alcohol beverage while you're using the uh, fireworks at all. Okay, so stay clear-headed when you're using them. Keep an extinguisher nearby. Those are some really good tips. Last year, 11 people died during these celebrations, and there were over 10,000 visits to the ER. We don't want to see a repeat of that, but if there is a mishap, what recommendations do you have to provide immediate care? Um, absolutely call 911, and um, all of your fire departments are in this region are prepared, and we have the appropriate resources to, to help you, uh, but we are uh, here for you 24 hours a day. And you may be aware of this, Corey, in Marion County, Florida on Saturday, fireworks led to a burning apartment, and it was a curious kid that actually set off the fireworks, and the rescue teams had to save a dog that was trapped inside. So are there some fireworks that are more dangerous than others, and how do you keep them away from kids? Um, again, uh, every firework that are sold uh, has the manufacturer's recommendations on proper use. Uh, please, I implore you to uh, anyone that has the ability within their jurisdiction to utilize consumer fireworks to follow the directions of the manufacturers. And please, uh, parents, adults, whoever is uh, responsible for the kids, please um, talk with them about the safety of it and do not allow kids to use fireworks without the proper um, adult uh, supervision. Very excellent tips from you, Corey Smedley, Fire and EMS Chief. I do really appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Please be safe out there. Yeah, no homemade fireworks. Don't go making your own. That was another tip I came across. That's important. Generally, very important tips. Tips that could potentially save a life, right? 11 people? Yeah, That's it's tragic. Um, but the July 4th holiday is also kicking off the season of summer cookouts. And if you're hosting several celebrations this summer, the costs can add up quickly. We have five tips to help you save while still enjoying delicious and memorable gatherings. The season of festive cookouts and barbecues is here, and the cost for those feasts can add up fast. While the cost to host gatherings this summer is slightly down this year, it's still the second highest cookout cost on record at nearly $70 for a party of 10. That's according to the Farm Bureau. The biggest thing to do when you're preparing your meal plan, your menu, is to shop the sales and plan your menu accordingly. Jessica Allen from the website Living Well, Spending Less has five tips to help you host several memorable cookouts this summer without breaking the bank. One, use what you have at home. Don't forget what you already have in your freezer, fridge, and your pantry. You've already purchased those items. Don't let them go to waste. Get creative and create a spread with what you already have on hand. Two, keep your menu simple and set your budget before you head to the store. Three, buy in bulk and go generic. When it comes to drinks and chips, buying in bulk can reduce costs. Four, if you're planning to grill, think through different cuts of meat that stretch a little further or go with chicken instead of beef chicken breast is down nearly 2% in price compared to last year. And five, get creative and go for a meatless meal altogether. There are plenty of recipes that use veggies or less expensive items. Get all of those colors in there. It makes your tablescape look beautiful. It's fresh, it's good for you, and it saves you a little money too.
And cookouts are just such a great time with the family. Yeah, exactly. So chicken, huh? Yeah. It's cheaper. All right. Uh, here's also a bonus, bonus tip. Turn your cookout into a potluck. You can encourage guests to bring a side dish or dessert to share. That way your hosting costs are lower and you get a more varied food spread. That's a good idea. And coming up, a museum in Alabama is doing what it can to educate young people about the legacy of Independence Day. And thousands of people will gather in New York today for the annual Nathan's Famous International Hot Dog Eating Contest. We have the story after the break. Good to have you back. In honor of the nation's birthday, I spoke to a presidential historian. She gives insight into how this day came to be and what exactly she is celebrating on this day. Joining me now is Jane Hampton Cook. She is a presidential historian. Good morning, Jane. It's great to have you. July 4th, uh, would you please start by telling us a little bit more about how this day would have played out in 1776? Sure. So in 1776, the Continental Congress was meeting in Philadelphia, and on this day, they voted to adopt the Declaration of Independence. Then they had it printed on big broadside sheets, and horseback riders took it all around the United States. And so they got it to New York, where they George Washington had it read out loud to the army, and they were so excited that some of them tore down the statue of King George III later that night. Um, in, um, in the Wall Street Bowling Green area of New York. So there was a lot of enthusiasm and excitement from the people when they read the Declaration of Independence for the first time. You wrote a book about the first fireworks too for Independence Day. So without giving too much away, what is the symbolism there um, to celebrate with fireworks every year? So, the, um, so I did write a children's book called First Fireworks um, for Independence, Virginia's Gift to America. And what happened is the Virginians met in May of 1776, and they issued a resolution to declare independence. And then they celebrated with the parade and fireworks. And so they were the first to do so. And then it just caught on. The next year, Philadelphia and, um, and Boston celebrated with fireworks. So it really, fireworks is an expression of joy that we cut the cords and our ties to the British Empire and that we became the United States of America on July 4, 1776. Right, and I also want to touch on one thing because the more and more millennials and Gen Z are saying that they aren't proud to be American. I want to hear your stance on this. What do you think? Why is this day worth celebrating for you? Well, because when the Declaration of Independence was adopted and released to the public, it really created the American ethos, the American spirit of what we're about, that we believe that our rights come from God, not government, that all are created with the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what you see is that the people themselves began to make slow and incremental changes in some ways, but you see that how the Declaration of Independence inspired some slaves to request their freedom in Massachusetts. Seven months later, they actually quote the Declaration of Independence. And so you don't see any movement on the issue of slavery until the Declaration of Independence. And Vermont, for example, came into the Union as the 14th state, and they didn't have slavery in their uh, constitution. They had abolished it. 
So all of these civil rights changes that happen really start with the Declaration of Independence. Very interesting insights. Thank you so much, Jane Hampton Cook. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. And a museum in Alabama is doing what they can to educate young people about the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and American democracy. Let's take a look. The 4th of July marks the founding of the United States of America. It's an important event for the American village just outside Birmingham, Alabama. The institution's mission is to teach young people the importance of the Declaration of Independence, the American Constitution, and the history of the Republic. We need to educate our youth as best we can on the founding era, the men and women that were part of it and the documents that came out of it creating our history. Um, they have to connect with it. I, I think there's a lot of apathy right now towards many things, and unfortunately history and, and government are one of those. Interpreters play the parts of the Founding Fathers. Yes, there is the evil fall of apathy. There is ignorance. But I see in these young people the same love of freedoms, the same love of country that we here possess. American Village features replicas of historical buildings and monuments, and the campus offers a variety of programs to young students and the general public year-round. They react positively to it, and then when they encounter uh, Mr. Adams or our other interpreters from history, they're immersed within that history, they're involved within that history, they're not getting it from a textbook. I always say it's like stepping inside the, the history book for them, and they love it. The organizers of American Village say their aim is to reach more and more school children and public visitors to reacquaint them with what it means to be an American. To learn more, please visit AmericanVillage.org. You know, it is really important to understand our country's history. Because think I about agree. it, if you don't understand your country's origins, how are you going to be motivated to participate in civics? Mm, that's deep. <laughs> <laughs> and what about hot dogs? Do you like them? I love them. Okay, good. Then you're going to like this story. Thousands <laughs> will gather at Coney Island today to watch competitive eaters scarf down mountains of hot dogs and buns during the annual Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest. Today, hot dog eating champion Joey Chestnut and Mickey Sudo will look to defend their gluttonous titles. Competitors will have just 10 minutes to devour as many as they can for a shot at hot dog glory. The televised event has become a 4th of July mainstay and is now in its 107th year. And Evelyn, did you know Joey Chestnut set the world record in 2021 by consuming 76 hot dogs and buns during the event? In 10 minutes, that is wild. Yeah, that's a wow. feat, I have to say. <laughs> well, good luck to all the participants. <laughs> what would you pick, pies as your food of choice? No, I think I'd still go with hot dogs. Oh, really? That okay. seems easier. That's a sight. I don't know why. Anyway, that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. Shoot us an email if you'd like. Have a great and safe 4th of July. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.